Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community. Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Pursuit of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. I'm Ryan Buck, Artist Development for New Leonard Media. With me, as always, is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. How are you? Ryan, I am doing great. That is great. That's enough of that. Our guest today is Samantha Tucro, Director, Sutton's Bay Indigenous Education Program. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank you. Now, I hope it's not too much. You have disclosed you've been up for the last, what, 72 hours straight? This is a long run. You haven't slept in a while. In a while. About 24 hours. It really has. I mean, I I got to bed about 3 a.m. and I woke up about 4.30, went back to work, and then went to bed for about another 30 minutes, woke up at 6.30 and and went to my schoolwork. (laughs) So disco nap. Right into right. <laughs> here. Here it is. A little peek behind the curtains, folks. You could not tell. I could not have told that oh, at thank all. Goodness. Because had I been up for 24 hours, I'd be a dribbling mess right now. So, <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you about your pursuits. But going right from the website's mission statements, the mission of the Sutton's Bay Public Schools Indigenous Education Program is to support the unique cultural and academic needs of Native American Alaskan students from pre-K through graduation. And can you touch on kind of what those unique needs are and how they may be changing moving forward? Oh, man. Every single time I get into Indigenous education, I always talk specifically about our cultural identity and the needs that we are as Indigenous people and how unique we are as people. It's a pretty phenomenal chance to sit back and kind of look at us and realize not too long ago we weren't allowed to really practice or speak in general terms on who we were without feeling punished or like it was going to backfire on us. So starting at Sutton's Bay, it was kind of like that moment to where I got to step into a building where the majority of my GTB family all was there, all in K through 12th, one building, and specifically identifying individual needs on where they are as each family. Some families, they start out and they're privileged enough to be able to have learned the majority of their culture and some families haven't yet. Those disparities aren't seen through the normal eye of pretty much anybody. So when I walked in, every single student was uniquely student-centered by trying to figure out and problem solve how I can individually help them. So that's the uniqueness. (laughs) Well, that's, I I mean, truly a literal... (laughs) definition of it, but you are faced with each year a very broad scope of mm-hmm. needs to address. 100%. And that could be the case each time with each group of students you get, correct? Yep. It's very broad based. Every year, so I mean, I've only been there for two years, but in education, leaving from TCAPS and coming into Sutton's Bay, automatically, I've never had one single year to where I could run the program consistently with a developed curriculum or complete mindset that this is how we're going to reach our kids. Our children are so unique in each disparity that they face every day to where it would be irresponsible of me to step in and say, the program is going to run one, two, and three objectives, and this is how we're going to follow through without individually looking at our students. Wow. I I I told you I was good at my job. I I think people can probably 
hear and feel your passion yeah. through their speakers or whatever they're listening to. We talked about this a little bit before we started rolling about how long this program has been in place. And it's been a long, long time. How important is understanding the history of the evolution to the program to you? How important is that? And what lessons did you learn from that? Oh, it's so important. I always date this back to district and community bringing it together as one. The program has been here for generations. I myself have been in Indian education and Todd Parker, actually from NMC, was my Indian education director at East Jordan, where I went to school. And and he's the guy who always kind of taught me growing up, like the means of finding out who you are. So it's been fun getting to know that and that perspective of how it went from beginning to now. It's different. Like we used to be ashamed to walk into a room when all the Indian kids got called down to go to the Indigenous Education Program because, you know, we didn't know what the heck it was. We would walk in and say, wait, we're Indian? What does that even mean? You know, and my, separated. And from separated, the other. yeah. Oh, that was the worst feeling, being separated from the district at whole. And there was and, no clarity yeah. to that? It no, was just no clarity. different. It was well, just different. Yeah. 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 In elementary for me, it, it was a little different, yeah. but also, unfortunately, I was a child of alcoholic groups yes. too. So I'd yeah. be separated by that. So in elementary, it wasn't such a big deal based on the school I was at. But by the time I got to uh, junior high, it wasn't as much that I felt different as other kids recognized that was happening. And, and they're then, curious. And then they start. Yeah. yeah, they're curious. It wasn't just like the recognition of it being like, oh, well, where is this person going? It was curious and they wanted to be a part of it or they wanted to know more about it themselves, too. But when you're facing a world of uncertainty and you don't know who you are individually, when you're being pulled into something, you automatically question who you are. And that's why that specific cultural identity piece is so critical to implement in all Indigenous education. I use the term Indigenous only just because we do offer program services to Alaskan Natives and Hawaiian Natives. So we're not just talking about Native Americans. So for Title VI, I have to be open for my brothers and sisters from Alaska and Hawaii. So then they feel welcome too. Another thing special that I always thought about in my day was Indian education was that there's different definitions and variations of what it means to be an Indian, a native person, an indigenous person. Sometimes you got your political affiliation as if you're an enrolled member of a specific yes. tribe that yep. has uh, certain governmental or treaty rights to a geographical area, but then others are racially. So mm -hmm. like you and Aaron, you guys walk down the street, even without the beadwork, right? Like yep. that woman is a native woman, yeah. you know, and it's not uh, Myself, I'm a little more ambiguous looking. And there's a lot of other kids that, you know, tribal members that are white, that are black, that are of Asian descent. And so a lot of times this program helped us to recognize yes. one another and actually understand that it's not just a racial identity. There's tradition to it. There's cultural identity. There that is supersedes in my opinion. 100%. And the best part about it is that the opportunity to really bring us together as a whole and create that opportunity to learn from each other and feel comfortable. It's a generational gap that we've kind of been missing for quite some time. We've been pursuing it. We've been working on it. But from the beginning all the way until now, the importance of district-wide, inclusively bringing our Native American students, our Indigenous students into the school and making them feel at whole with that community is 
really critical for the program's success. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we talked about this a little bit earlier as well, about you're still identifying yep. your challenges, what you face. And having been in the role two years now, was there anything in that two years that you did discover that you went, oh, wow, this is something we have to deal with? Or yes. that you didn't feel totally prepared to tackle and you had to seek other resources? I did. So I came into the position before Sutton's Bay and understood our program as a crutch, not a success. And we filtered our disparities by enabling our students to where by the time they hit graduation and they stepped out of the K through 12 world, they were not prepared for college or life or society in general. So that automatically like hit me hard year one, especially being at Sutton's Bay. You know, you see your reservation in your hometown and you're like, you want the best for everyone. And you always hear teachers, they tell you, go out into the real world, do your thing, get your education, find what you're passionate about, but come home and give back to your community. When you're in Sutton's Bay, your community is Peshawi Town. And so that's what I want for my students. And we were failing them. We were setting them up by failure by providing a space that was important to them, but also providing the answers for them and not giving them the opportunity to build and learn and create that themselves. That's a huge challenge. It is. We're still facing it right now. So when you look at how you benchmark success, Mm -hmm. when you got into the role, was there a benchmark of success? And have you changed that in any way? Have you reframed how you consider success? We, oh man, we change our benchmark like almost every other month. But it's really just because the benchmark of success in Sutton's Bay has been pandemic success. So unfortunately, speaking in general terms, my success for Sutton's Bay has been for the survival of my people, making sure that they were being fed and they had water and they had you know, the means to feel okay and the mental health like within their homes. We still face so much just being the poverty place of Leelanau County. That right there speaks loudly that during the pandemic, our families were struggling. I mean, at one time, oh my God, almost made me cry. At one time, like one of my kids were like freaking out because they couldn't figure out how to do like basic math. And this is like a fourth grader. So I drove up and I brought erasable markers and they sat in their window and I had to learn how to write it backwards. So then that way they could read it through the window because that's their day-to-day like challenge. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) That choked me up too because I was like, um, that was the first time I actually really said that out loud. But but it was crazy because like my success for Sutton's Bay, my benchmarks has changed on a month-to-month basis because we've been in pandemic world. But longevity-wise, we started out at Sutton's Bay with about 136 kids who were completely failing, whether it was SEL, whether it was their grades, whether it was just their ability to socialize with humans inside of school. We have about 12 students who at most is our most risky ones. So our benchmarks, we created those over the years to specifically fit our kiddos and where they were at that time and place of needs. So it's, I'm kind of hoping like I get to really set a cool benchmark and be like, yeah, like we just made leaps and bounds. So many successes (laughs) through the last couple of years, I feel have this weighty asterisk around them 
as in, well, despite COVID or despite this, but a success is still a success. And I think it's great that organizations can be uh, a little more fluid with how they define success. Before, it may have been a little more hard line. It could be financial, top line, revenue, what have you. So when you think about yourself and what brought you here, can you touch on your educational journey up to this point and what oh, yeah. touchstones created success for you in your current role? Oh, heck yeah. So this is where it got me today. And it's 100% because I understood the trauma my mother went through for Indian boarding schools at a young age. It's pretty insane because I remember being like, I think nine or 10. And um, she was like crying hysterically while she was doing laundry. And she couldn't tell me what she was crying about because she was just distraught. But about five or 10 minutes into it, she finally spoke about how she was sad because of her son that was taken from her in an Indian boarding school. I have an older brother a lot of people don't know about. His name's Randy, but he didn't make it past like six months. But in Indian boarding schools, they shipped her from Holy Childhood out to California when she was pregnant. And they automatically took the baby from her because her parent was an alcoholic and, and one wasn't present in their life. So they made those decisions for her. I remember that moment so specifically because I didn't know the extents of it. I was like, how did that happen? Why was you at a school? Why did your parents ship you across the world? And I remember her saying her parents didn't even know that they shipped her to California. So here we're like, me, 10-year-old Samantha, like, holy crap, like, I think there's something about me that I don't know. And sure enough, yeah, 10 years old, 10 years not old, like life isn't not hard like, enough. yeah, not like it's hard enough. I remember I was like in fifth and sixth grade. And by the time I hit seventh grade, I was like, holy crap, I'm going to this Indian education program. My mom cries a lot for her past. We pretend that we aren't Native American so that the community doesn't see us, but we behind closed door speak our language and make regalias and dance and powwows. I was like, why don't we talk about this at school? So it hit me most in high school. Three, four years later, I'm sitting in my high school class in Northport, and one of the coolest history teachers I've ever had was my basketball coach and just a really cool down-to-earth guy. He always made sure that our Native American students felt super comfortable. Why but do you think he did that? I think he saw the struggles that we were. When most people disregarded the fact that some students were breaking down because school was too hard, he wanted to know why we were and he wanted to fix it. And I love problem solvers. And that's yeah. potentially just a person doing what they thought was right. Yep. That wasn't directed yep. by the school. Nope. That was an individual acting on their own. 100%. Who yeah. may have been even <laughs> reprimanded for something like that I can, in a way I, at, at a certain time or hopefully was celebrated for that. I hope so, too. I hope he was super celebrated for it. But, you know, we, we were sitting in his classroom and then all of a sudden he turns and looks at me and my husband because we are dating. We've been dating since high school. And he goes, okay, here's our section on Native American history. And it literally was legit like five sentences. I'm not kidding. It was no bigger than like two inches of an insert. And that was my freaking Native American history. And I'm sitting here and I was just like. You had like a leaflet? Yeah. I mean, that's it. <laughs> it was Everybody insane. Else has textbooks. For real. Yeah. It was like the whole or, damn textbook. And we're like looking at this. Or they would talk about Plains Indians. Yeah. And, and, the and nothing to and, where and the, we were. And the Sioux. Yeah. And like. And then look at myself and like a Sault Ste. Marie tribal member, yeah. an Ojibwe friend of mine that was like, I'm thinking fifth grade, Mark, Keith, you guys, yeah. like, 
what like i don't know (laughs) it was insane because like i remember even thinking like i grew up like my people were in tps because that's what was taught to us like in the lower elementary there's no tps here (laughs) so here we're he turns to aaron and i because he respected us so much and he goes you know do you guys have anything to say about it and we literally like froze and i remember like feeling numb and i shook my head like no i have no idea no like, these five sentences yeah, cover it this five good. Se- yeah <laughs> we're good these whole five sentences we're totally good but as soon as that moment surpassed i dedicated every moment in my academic career from high school through college to if i needed to write a paper i wrote it on native americans and if i did i wrote it specifically on indian boarding schools and i remember a couple teachers yeah returning the paper and saying that person isn't a, a, a war hero or that person isn't in education because they didn't go to school for Anishinaabe language. And I'm sitting here like, whoa, dude, you know, these people are heroes to me. You asked me to write a paper on a hero. And I just searched the whole World Wide Web and found two amazing Navajo men who crossed the whatever. And so you had adult lived- teachers yeah. engaging in semantic arguments with 100%. you? 100%. And I never let down. And it, it's one of the reasons why I was just so like critically determined to prove them wrong because I was angry. I was so angry on the inside that they were telling me who I was and they didn't even know who I was. And not only that, but they stripped that from me and then they wanted me to relearn it, but on their terms. It freaked me out. Uh, yeah. I, I did not like it. I have a question that you have prompted me to ask a pre-question because, or maybe more of you can affirm a comment in that I'm interested in knowing an educator along your path that was the most profound to you. It could be your history slash basketball coach. Think about that. But can you also say that knowing you wanted to do this for so long, you also honed in on a lot of bad examples. I did. You had a lot of poor examples along the way. Yep. And maybe filed that in the never do that if I get into that position. Yeah, I did. My success story for the one that has ever been most influential to me, my art teacher and at Northport, Mrs. Sweeney, her parents were in the Holocaust. And I want to say she had a ring that her father kept for her mother and they were Holocaust survivors. And so her generational trauma that was spoken so broadband in history and in the world was she could identify that it was identical to what we were going through. And she was one who opened up my eyes that, you know, you're speaking out in terms that nobody's heard because nobody's challenged it before. But what your people went through is exactly what my parents went through in the Holocaust. And she stayed forever. She actually is Aaron's favorite teacher, too. <laughs> and so, yeah, so you ask Aaron, he'll be like, Mrs. Sweeney from Northward. She was the oh coolest gosh. person in the world. And then, of course, the worst I've ever had was sitting. I, I moved from East Jordan, which, like I said earlier, I we pretended who we were behind closed doors. Like our identity was only who we were in the inside of our house because my mom was so terrified that we were going to get to be taken from her like how she was taken from them so for us to talk about who we were as a people and to identify who we was as native american was terrifying to her and she had to overcome that and she didn't overcome that until she pretty much replaced herself back into peshawi town and that's how we ended up in peshawi town is she wanted us to to learn what was taken from her so she moved us here i was a straight a student in east jordan 
and and this tails on. We're getting there. I promise you. I speak in circles, but no, I promise no. you we're getting there. But this tails on and how I landed in education. But we landed in Shabby Town, and I remember the first day going to school, and I'm not going to name the school, but I walked in. And the school guidance counselor sat me down and put me in special ed classes because I was Native American. Because the majority of Native Americans from Shabby Town were in special ed classes. And I freaking had straight A's. Without um, any any gauge of your academic achievements. No gauge. First day, walked in. And I was so ticked off. And I remember walking out. And then I walked into this room, the special education room. And I sat down. And I was just like, they weren't like people playing with blocks in no, the corner and stuff. No. It wasn't that bad. Yeah, but. it wasn't that bad. You know, they, they we were still working and everything. But my first disparity happened the first day I stepped into that building, and that was just because they profiled me as somebody who was unable to learn to their terms. And when people take away my power, that's when I get ticked off. And so automatically, I come running out of there. I'm screaming. I'm like, "What are you doing to me? I got straight A's. I'm already done with algebra." And that's like high school. I'm like in seventh grade telling them, look at my credits, look at my transcripts. And I remember the, the superintendent at the time telling him like, no, you need to be in this class and this is where you're supposed to be. Even after, and even after clearly demonstrating yeah, you are, yeah, you've surpassed yeah, that and then some. 100%. It was the most craziest time of my life. So I automatically came out and I, I just lost it. Like I didn't want to go to school. And this is why I landed in indigenous education. I didn't want to go to school. I disconnected myself from the connection that I was hoping to eventually build with my new move. I thought uh, powerless. I felt powerless. And I felt stripped of my rights, like my educational right to learn as a human being. Like they took that from me the first day I walked into that building. So as soon as I started getting into schooling, gosh, I fought tooth and nail through high school. I never wanted to be there. I... Never connected, like I said, with the peer, my peers. I hated academics. It, it, it was a love of my life. And then it turned into the, one of the things I feared most doing, and that was waking up every day and going to school. So my mom fought to, tooth and nail every morning, like dragging me up and forcing me to go to school. I remember the police taking me a couple times because my mom, mom was just like, said we're calling in reinforcements. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a truant student now. Like I'm the epitome of Native American education. And they did that to me. And 100 percent, I'm pulling off the reservation like every day going to this school. And half the time I just walked off. Like, well, what are they going to do? Follow me out and stop me? And and then it got to the point to where I was just like over it. Well, I met this two amazing women. One actually works in Milwaukee in Indian education herself or in indigenous education, the school, an Indian school in general. It's phenomenal. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And she changed my life. It's well done. Yeah. It's so well done. Her and her cousin which one lives in Milwaukee. She's rocking it out like a rock star out there. And the other one, she's no longer with us. They made me realize, like, you got to go to school, man. If you want out of this, this is our ticket out. You got to enroll yourself in this school and you need to finish your high school diploma and you're going to go to college. And I remember, like, moving in with them as a teenager because I love my mom through and through, like, no matter what. But she's suffering from generational trauma from her boarding school to where it was difficult for her to take care of us. So it, like... 15, 16, I moved out and and moved in with my girlfriends. The one thing they told me, you got to go to school. 
you don't have to work. You don't have to pay for anything, but you have to go to school. So I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. <laughs> it's like, I guess I'll try this thing again. And I went back to the travel school and the travel school at GTB helped me get to the finish line. And I remember the day before, because we legit were like surviving teenagers. <laughs> Our electricity went out <laughs> and I'm sitting the night before graduation and Cindy from the tribal school told me you cannot graduate till you finish this paperwork because she made me be accountable for what I was doing. That's what we miss in our schools right now in public education for Native American students. I'm glad you said yeah. her name. Yeah. Because a lot yeah. of the, those individuals go, yeah. the heroes. They go, really go unknown. Un, unknown. Years. And, you yep. know, that's that's why it was important for me to bring yeah. you on too, because there's not enough of you. Yep. There, there isn't. I'm a high school dropout. Yeah. You know, for the same reasons that Samantha had explained. And there's a, a lot of things that we've already touched on about the little known history and expecting us to know about other tribes elsewhere yeah. when it's mm -hmm. like, I'm being raised Odawa. Like, I don't know anything about the Navajo. You know, yeah. like, you, you just ask somebody from Spain about France or I don't know, like, if that's crazy. a good comparison. But right now, not to get topical, but... <laughs> We're not shying away from it. Yeah. Senator Wayne Schmidt of Michigan has introduced a bill encouraging the Michigan State Board of Education to ensure standards for history curriculum in 8th through 12th grade to include learning objectives covering boarding schools. Yeah. So... I've been you saying know, it. I know. Yeah. And, and if there's just like some understanding of that and... Just like with the civil rights movement, people yeah. try to act like that's so much further than it was, or yeah. even like slavery yeah. was so much further than it was, that the Indian Religious Freedom Act was 1978. That's like, I was bubbling. I was yeah. about to be born around that time. It was you one know? generation We ago. weren't allowed to practice. Certain practices were done in secret. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thank you, miigwech, to those that were brave enough to like keep it alive. And then the other is to to recognize that, like, I have cousins that went to the boarding schools. They mm -hmm. weren't closed until the 80s. So, like, this was still continuing. Yeah. Maybe not still by forced, you know, this started in the 1800s was the kill the man or kill the Indian to save the man is what it was. And it was just trying to get assimilation. And maybe it was just so that everybody would live in harmony. Yeah. But... The effects as mankind and especially the so-called civilized world always tries to do one thing and maybe have a good intention so they may think but not realize the byproduct and the fallout mm. from that. I think in general you're probably being pretty kind uh, to some <laughs> of those folks back then. But we've been so fortunate on the podcast to have quite a few Native American guests. Yeah. And what's so interesting and not by design... Two topics have emerged almost consistently, boarding yeah. schools. Yes. And one that I'd like to ask you about is the reclamation of language. Yes. Oh. And it, it's even explained, I think, to anybody, you can understand how powerful this is. So how do you speak to the topic of reclamation of language in your program? And how does it come up, especially with students who may be members of different tribes and how do you use that to your advantage in the program? Oh man. So we as indigenous people, we as Anishinaabe people, we use humor as everything. And it's like one of the coolest things that I see within our school systems that sometimes look at as, well, these kids aren't reformed. They're messing around too much. 
But that's their blood memory talking. And that's them persevering through their disparities and them finding that genetic code of Anishinaabe like teachings, like Mm -hmm. using humor. So automatically, every single time we talk about language and the rehabilitation and the need for it in the school, I always actually jump in with this funny saying to where, you know, forever everyone would make fun of me and say, Samantha, you're not, you're mixing up words. You, you make up your own words. You, you do this. And finally, one day I was so sick of them telling me, I was like, dude, English is not the language I'm supposed to be speaking. <laughs> like, <laughs> so every time we talk about Anishinaabe language and bringing that and that power that it holds and the importance of having that reinstilled into our people or reinstilled into the public education system, I specifically make a joke and I tell them, I say, English isn't the language I'm supposed to be speaking. So we're here formatting our children still to that systematic way that they want us to be formed. And that's what I persevered and pushed so hard against my whole entire life. So why would I want to form to it? I, I wanted to bring that back into our people and to our children so that they understood the importance of who they were and speaking that language is how we are. I talk in circles, in which I, I relate to being a storyteller. And then not only that, but I also, when I describe something or I'm trying to talk, everyone will make fun of me. They'll say, yeah, uh, I'll say, what is that thing that people walk across and, and a river runs under it? They're like, Samantha, you speak Anishinaabe, but in like English, because we describe what we see in our language. <laughs> Like, yeah. I'm sitting here and I'm always joking That's a with. Way to frame that. Right, right. And so I'm always cracking up because we'll be at school and all. And, and my colleagues, coworkers, they just love me. And so they, they get where I'm coming from. But when I start identifying that, you know, how I can, if I can break those language barriers with non natives to have them understand where I am and see where I am. I'm hoping that that's going to be able to give them an opportunity to understand the importance of why our blood memory is like fiending for our language to come back. And we generationally have had it taken away. We were put in a place to where we had to speak correct. And if not, we're always wrong. The majority of my students that always fail in one form of academics is English, is English. It drives me insane because a little piece of me just wants to take them out of there and say, there's a reason why they're having a difficulty with this. But if you try to come to a white privileged family and ask them like, what is most hard for you? The last thing they're going to understand is that we're struggling in English because our blood memory is just telling us that we want to speak our Anishinaabe language. Like it's crazy. It's real difficult to have those conversations without offending or making sure that no one else doesn't understand where you're coming from. But that's my job. Like that's what I do all the time. I I create conversations. Yeah. Yeah. It was was great. And there's a, there's a, there's a couple of things in there. So when I was a student, a, a kid in, in uh, junior high, our program also was like an after school. Yeah. And so there's different years, different yeah. budgets, like depending yep. on how the program and different resources, including knowledgeable individuals. But the kids from West, we get on a bus and we go to East yep. and it was great <laughs> to meet all the other native kids at East, but then also we'd have, you know, Kenny Pheasant there giving mm-hmm. us language lessons where I learned to count and I learned the time of the day and I learned... How to speak... How to um, say of, pie. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> that was the one word every kid wanted to know. And, how to say pie. <laughs> nah, the mathematic? No, the, the word pie in oh, their language. Oh, yeah, because it's long. It's I remember it too. Do you remember it? No. No? Okay, no, it's... Baskimenstige bito gis quagin again. That's how we say apple pie. 
Yeah. Yeah. Basta Mitzkebi told you he's quaking again. <laughs> you need to really want yeah. apple pie. <laughs> you if you really want really really order Or yeah, like, I was like, like, gigado be up cones. Yeah. You know, it's just like the small talking wire, the, te- <laughs> yeah. the telephone. I love it. Yeah. You know, oh. One thing that I always think about too is the division amongst tribes. Like, if you explain what a tribe is to somebody, I'm Odawa from that tribal yeah. nation, but I'm Grand Traverse band yeah. tribal citizen, which is comprised of families of Ojibwe and Odawa tribes. Yep. But since this has a separate political affiliation mm-hmm. with the government, with the state, the feds, the surrounding municipalities, we have different sovereign rights than our Odawa cousins at Little mm-hmm. River or our Ojibwe cousins up in the UP. And what happens then is we're all competing for resources. Yeah. And we're all competing for Mm -hmm. language teachers. Mm -hmm. And as our fluence get older and journey on, we struggle to have the resources at the same time to make something big happen. So for the longest time, Rosetta Stone was like the King language app for any world language. And we couldn't get on it. GTB would love to do that, but it was super expensive. We never had those resources at the time. We still have to worry about education and health and Mm -hmm. housing so millax awesome bless them oh i heard about that they made it they made it happen so that's available but there's also increasing resources more and more when you spoke to the indian school in milwaukee why that's so special is because one i think it predates tribal gaming which has like it's been a great economic engine for tribes in lieu of having a tax base to fund our governmental programs, but it also divides us based on market share and et cetera. But they managed to pull this together, several tribes in Wisconsin to put them all under one roof. One tribe gave up the land and uh, put their land into trust. The other two tribes helped or two or three, I can't can't recall, but pitched in, they made the school happen and it's on Potawatomi land. Yep. But not just Anishinaabe Moen is being taught there because there's several other tribes that are part of this. So so kids get to get to a certain level in their education and then choose which language they want. Which language they want. And it's it's crazy, too, because I don't speak to my tribe as my cultural identity. I speak to them as my federal recognition. And I honor that. But my cultural identity is me as being an Anishinaabekwe, an Adawa woman who um, is a descendant from my grandfather, who is a tribal fisherman and grew up raised on Beaver Island. And my grand, my mothers who are surviving boarding schools, like that's my cultural identity, my tribal recognition. That's my my federal recognition to who I am. And yeah. we have to decipher the difference between those two specifically to reinstill that power back into our children. If they know who they are, they're going to be more successful in school. If they have no doubt on who they are or the language they speak, the power that they uphold as the first people who habitated this like area, they're going to make leaps and bounds in education and transition our Native American people from the society we're living in today to the next generation that's going to thrive most. And I don't want to say I gave up and I'm not going to make it for my people, but... I don't see myself as the one who's going to make changes yeah. for our tribe. I see the ones I'm working with every day, K through 12. And those are the people like I see that's going to be the one that change, change it for us. 
And so well, we're but... talking about opportunities and Mark brought up something. I just want to read something from the United Nations website. It's maybe a little long, but I just want your take on this. And it has to do with indigenous people's education and challenges. But uh, from the United Nations website, lack of respect and resources cause critical education gap. Too often education systems do not respect indigenous people's diverse cultures. There are too few teachers who speak their languages and their schools often lack basic materials. Educational materials that provide accurate and fair information on indigenous peoples and their ways of life are particularly rare. Despite the numerous international instruments that proclaim universal rights to education, indigenous peoples do not fully enjoy these rights, and an education gap between indigenous peoples and the rest of the population remains critical worldwide. Would you agree that that, in general, is the case? Yeah. Now, other issues that these students face, and this is for the UN website, and mm -hmm. I, I think this is, is worth discussing, arriving at school hungry or ill, facing bullying or discrimination, dealing with loss or lack of identity, and un unregistered births. Mm -hmm. Things like bullying and discrimination. Is it better or worse now because of social media? You know, you would say that there's maybe more awareness and more discussion around the challenges that Indigenous peoples face, but things like lack of identity, loss of language, I don't think is as universally known as it should be. So things like bullying, is that worse yeah. now or is it better? I want to say it's worse, but I I also know that through making us aware districtly of finding out who we are as a people and including, you know, we, we have four colors for our medicine wheel. It's red, black, white, and yellow. And I always say our black, white, red, and yellow brothers and sisters, like, when we include them to be a part of the conversation and at a certain extent, because I also was taught that, you know, the teachings that we are given, some teachings are meant to be in the lodges and kept in the lodges versus ones that we're actually supposed to teach thoroughly. So I ride a fine line with educating our students' cultural identity and who they are versus the district-wide. But it, it does get worse. It has been worse over years. And I, I feel the worst part about it is it's uncontrollable. You can't control that in the public school systems at all. When you, come, when you get on social media or you get on the World Wide Web, you're sitting here and you're dealing with head-on facing discrimination that the majority of our kiddos don't even know how to react to it. And if we don't have those conversations built within our systems, we're pretty much setting them up to, again, fail within the public school systems right. of not feeling that comfortable or welcomed. And so. on the other side of it, what you're doing in, in building and creating confidence through identity is a good thing. And yeah. it will help combat the negative feelings from that sort of thing. But is it all difficult trying to accomplish what you're accomplishing with, let's say, a teenager who maybe is fostering a little healthy, rebellious attitude anyway, because what do teenagers do? They rebel against their parents <laughs> yeah. and sometimes their grandparents. How does that come into play? Is everybody just on board with being a part of this, or do you have some rebellious teenagers who just don't want to do anything you're asking them to do? Oh, you've got them all. The spectrum from zero to 10 is real. I'm going to say zero to 100. But <laughs> you know what? You, I've always been about... You know, I like to have conversations and meaningful conversations that talk about the issues, talk about what's wrong. And then I like leaving it with the solves. And when I stepped into a lot of my educational positions with Indigenous education and with our Native American students, we've been looking at the system the wrong way as Native American people in general anyways. Like 
Why do we need to come in and speak specifically on how to quit the bullying? Why can't we come in and create how to promote and re-instill that power specifically back into our kids? So yes, I see discrimination and yes, I see bullying and I see racist comments thrown from side to side. And it's never something I yet had to deal with specifically one-on-one with anyone in the school systems, but I'm still, I know that it's there, yeah. but why try to figure out the system for that when we can revert it or redirect it and instill the power back into our students? Right. So I see them struggling and I see things happening. And instead of walking over to the parents or walking over to whoever may be creating that discrimination to our kiddos and saying, that's wrong, you can't do that, you that's, that's horrible, blah, blah, blah. I walk over to our kids and I tell them what it's like to be resilient. And I teach them what it's like to be, to persevere through moments like this. So then that way they're prepared for life. Right. Because that's the system we've always been in. It's always correcting the bad, but never focusing on what we can do for the better of our kids. And I like to do the better. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I read in a 2021 article that you are an artist. Oh, man. And you were taught how to traditionally bead when you were yeah. 11 by your grandfather, who <laughs> yep. also a painter. Yep. And... You really poured yourself into this. I did. Now, (laughs) how important was it to have a little healthy friction, a little healthy adversity as an artist? Is it important to struggle and to have adversity as an artist, or can you be a happy artist? You can be a happy artist. Yeah. I'm super happy. I'm way too happy some days. But the struggle, their struggle is real. Like, that term is 100% real. Like, I remember struggling trying to figure out if I was ever good enough or Indian enough to be. And I mean, for real, because, like, or I didn't Indian know who I was. To be. Can you yeah. on that? What yeah. do you mean by that? Like, yeah. I didn't know who I was. Like, I, I grew up, like, picking up a needle and thread and and drawing out a flower and beating it, but I never understood what the flower meant. Like, I didn't know what woodland Indians was because we were taught about Plains Indians. <laughs> so like, as you said. said, so 100%, I struggled with it for my whole entire life until I figured out that it wasn't my fault and that there was stuff taking from me and it wasn't our right as a people. And we just have to figure out how to bring it back. But beating was like that one thing to where it brought who I was out and it made me feel comfortable. And it's the love of my life. How, how important is it, would you say, to find some connectivity to art at a young age? It was obviously important to you, but is it important to find art at a young age? And is it tough to get younger students into something as complicated as beadwork? It's do they defi- have the patience for it? They do. Oh, my gosh. I just did a beating class with our middle schoolers this, this past um, week, and I'm sitting down with these kiddos who sometimes jump from wall to wall and they're in a classroom and sometimes, you know, they struggle with wanting to facilitate that work and just drawing or making a clay pot or whatever. And you sit them down in something that is re- recognizable to who they are. You're changing the narrative in the classroom for them and you're allowing them to feel accepted and you're allowing them to embrace something that they have no idea about, but they've always wondered and was curious about. And that's where the patients it's come in. Therapeutic. Yep. It's therapeutic. Once you start doing yep. it, you just you, you just you go. feel it. Have you ever yeah. heard in school one of your students with a piece that they worked on, a bead piece, and another student's like, "What's that? I yep. did this in class." And the other student's like, 
well, I, I did math in class or something. They could tell. <laughs> could, could you ever have an influx of students who just want to maybe be a part of one of your art classes? They or, do. Oh, yeah. they do. They All do. Right. They always say, Mrs. Ducro, are you here to beat? And I'm like, yes, I am. Wait, am I in your group? No, you're not. Not this time. Well, why not? And I'm like, well, we have to rotate because I'm only one person and I only can teach X amount of students. But it's hilarious they created yeah it is it's a high demand it's perfect but wonderful but it's like the one thing that i felt that was the least invasive to learn that was culturally connected to who i was and as someone of uncertainties or unknowing of who i am it was the easiest way to say well i'm native american i can be and it's like, well, I'm Native American. I'm drawing a flower. I can, it's, this is Woodland Indian. Right. You know, well, I'm Native American. I'm using porcupine quills because we did them. Well, I'm Native American. Now I'm using birch bark. Like, it's crazy because, like, you you evolved as an artist just based upon who you were as your ident- yeah. identity. That's uh, cool. I, I, I love yeah. the, the artistic uh, aspect. And, and thank you for bringing that up because I've, one of my favorite elders, all my elders are my favorite, but. One of my favorite elders had spoke about in his lifetime when he was young, arguing over who's more Indian. Yeah, you I know? heard that a and, lot too. And they, they, <laughs> they made it about who was the brownest. Yep. And then it was like, who's exercising their treaty rights the most? Who's out oh, hunting, yeah, fishing, yeah. trapping? And then it became about who powwows the most. Yep. You know, and then he's like, and then I noticed in recent years, it's like, who's in language class the most? Who's, yeah. who's learning the language the most? And no matter what, all of those things collective are what make a culture. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what's going to take the community because a lot of us feel exactly like you articulated yeah. and just aren't brave enough to say it. It is. It's so and, hard. And I, I have to say, well, you know, I'm half of Sicilian descent. I don't know anything about Sicily, yeah. but I was fortunate enough to be raised here in Odawa country and raised with the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians my whole life. So I was raised Odawa, and that's what I know and understand. But even then, you realize how many of us don't know. And and some get guarded. And those often, the ones that are guarded are the ones that will put another down for not being Indian enough. Yeah, it is. And, and you got to learn how to work with the, with the trauma, too. Like, you know, if you can't respond to the trauma, you're only hurting your people worse. Yeah. And so, and, and that specifically is one of the, like... The hardest things I see most is knowing that somebody is making that guard and that guard isn't their fault. And you have to be understanding to yeah. that or it's only going to break who we it's are. It's so incredible that yeah. you you are offering so many different types of and you said therapy in a way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because sometimes directed in the right ways. Yeah. Trauma can be used for something undeniably positive if yeah. it's done for art if it's done and it's terrible that it has to come from a place but yeah. when you see somebody who takes that whatever that pain whatever that struggle is and turns it into something beautiful i mean you may not know it as, as the viewer or the somebody who appreciates it but are you seeing any forms of art that are kind of new from some kids maybe it's not the traditional beadwork but could it be music are you seeing any oh, yes. types of things emerging that people can look for Oh man, our kiddos in music right now in in middle and high school are it's breaking through like and they're using how they're feeling and, and writing it in their songs and they're actually connecting with our public with our school staff because they're saying what they can't articulate in front of you with a basic conversation they're using music to 
express how they feel and who they are and and what they feel is missing. And it's crazy because just this past week we had one kiddo who we haven't really seen in like a year and a half. And he's supposed to graduate this year. And every single person in the school building was trying to get a hold of him. And nobody could make this happen. And finally, mom, after the millionth and tenth time coming in and saying, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. The first thing we asked him was, well, what is he connected to? And automatically, they most Native parents, you ask them that question and they say, well, he doesn't really go to ceremonies or he doesn't powwow. And he says that they say the basic. And we're like, no, I mean, like, what is he connected to just in general? And the, so you're here in Indigenous education and you're just like automatically thinking like, oh, you know, Samantha Tuco is going to ask you what I'm connected to. And I got to say something Indian. And then in here, I'm like, no, what is he connected to? And they're like, my music. And it's like, well, well, send me a, send me a song. And. Just this past week, he sent a song to us. And for the first time ever in, in years, he walked right back into the building, connected with his peers, just because that was his form of expressing who he was. And so identity-wise, yeah, he spoke on his troubles on the reservations, his abuse that he's seen growing up in his home. He spoke on like so many levels of why I don't feel accepted and why I feel misunderstood and heard. And I use my art to tell stories. And when I get a chance to do that, like I have baby strawberries and I call them um, Bonojin um, Ode. And I created that this past year at Santa Fe when I was out there for the Indian market. And that was my way of expressing how I felt about all the babies surfacing from the Indian boarding schools that were hundreds and thousands of graves like being found. Like every artist, we create something. Every musician has something to be said. Every form of whether it's in basketball or whether it is painting on a piece of canvas or whether it's playing lacrosse, like we're creating a form of movement and expression through our art, regardless on whether it's speaking, moving or beating, creating. It's so cool. That's creating an individualized plan for Indigenous students. That's what's so critical about Indigenous education, understanding, building that relationship individually with that person, because that's how you break cycles. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. You <laughs> have had your work featured all over northern Michigan, yeah. all over the state. You have work in the Smithsonian National I Museum do. of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. You've had work featured at the Electric Forest Music Festival. Yeah. Right? Heck yeah. So I, I, I forgot see, about that. <laughs> see, you I sometimes wish this was a visual medium because your yeah. smile, your brightness. <laughs> is, well, I assume the listeners can feel it. Good. But... <laughs> How do you rank success in art and in work? Are they the same? Are they different? How how do you, at the end oh, of the man. day, when you finally sleep that half an hour a day, yeah, what are you thinking about? What what kind of lulls you to sleep when you reflect on success? Man, I cannot sleep till I have my next move planned out. Like for real, it's so bad. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I draw, and I'm like, oh crap, this would be so. This is revolutionary. Like. This is that next big move. Like, this is would be so amazing. And I get up and Aaron gets so mad because, like, I move and toss and I roll over. I pick up my phone. I type something out. or And it's always either something that I can do at school for my students or I'm drawing something out. And it's like, if I don't have my next move, like, planned, like, I'm laying in bed thinking, I'm thinking about what I'm missing or what I'm not doing that can be helpful for them. And so it's, it's pretty crazy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So you're just testing, it, and, and that's how you know the people in your life really are with you. They can, yeah. They, they're with you in those creative moments and those spurts <laughs> yeah. at three in the morning when you've got to write that down. 
Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd want our listeners to know? Oh, man. So I don't know. I feel like my whole life has been just a plethora of just trying to figure out who I was. And as soon as I started moving on and accepting, like, it's okay not to know everything and it's okay to be that person who is still learning, it became more acceptable for me as an Indigenous woman to, like, really persevere through those hard moments and understand like how critical it is for our youth to instill that power back into them. So, I mean, it was beating 101 was what broke the cycle for me and what made me feel comfortable. So I used that as the opportunity for our kids. And, and it turned out both education and beating ended up being the passions of my life. So and who would have guessed? And a great history basketball <laughs> yeah. teacher. For real. Folks along the way. Well, how can listeners maybe support your program, even donate, volunteer? Are there any ways that that folks can support? So like our program only upholds like three objectives. We do our cultural identity with our students, um, district-wide awareness, which is critical for that acceptance piece with our students feeling good in our school. Because we're not a tribal school. Like we don't have that available for our students. So the place of landing where our kiddos are, that's where they need to feel most welcomed. And on top of that, we have the last and final piece, and that's that student success piece to get them across the finish line of graduation and learning how to be a successful adult, not just getting them to graduate because we forgot to implement those study skills and those important accountability pieces for our kiddos so that they can thrive and surpass high school and, and move on and keep moving and going. But anytime anybody ever wants to donate time to speak with kiddos, like we started a mentorship program this year, and anybody who is just, you know, we have kiddos who are going to school for dentistry and no one in their families ever graduated from high school. And so like that disparity alone speaks terms on, you know, they need someone to talk to about the college process. They need someone to talk to about financials of college. They need someone to talk to about what they're actually getting into. We can't just say they're graduated. Here's your diploma. See you later. Have a good life. Mm -hmm. Like we need to prepare them for that. So volunteers for situations like that, we're always up. Yeah. Real life stuff. stuff, Like one-on-one and, and then the mental health piece, like that's a big part of it too. Like our kiddos are struggling really bad right now and they just need someone to listen to or an unbiased person that is just going to be able to say like, I'm going to hear everything you're going to say. And I promise you, like, I'll never leave this room and it'll be good. But, and of course we're always, we don't really have a lot of fundage for like the actual material implementation of the program. So a lot of the time it comes out of my pocket, (laughs) but at any time we're always looking for like ribbon and material for ribbon skirts, leather for beading moccasins. Our seniors are all making ribbon skirts and ribbon shirts and moccasins for graduation day. So they can walk down with those on. So like they're, they're all individually doing stuff like that. So like stuff like that goes a long ways. And we're a program that doesn't really reach out for a lot when it comes to program materials. But I know that the students, even if we didn't, if I said we didn't have it, they would go ask the community and they're always yeah. first to jump up. Well, so it's we awesome. can ask. So listeners, please support yeah. this program. <laughs> the website is uh, schools.com. Is there yeah. any other way to get directly to... Any information about the program, or is that just the best way to go? Oh, you can always call the school, too. And everyone knows who I am. And so they would give you automatically the first way of how to connect with me. And so it's the best way, too. Beautiful. Well, Samantha, (laughs) thank you so much for your pursuits and to those, all of those who pursue, along with you, ensuring Indigenous students receive the respect, education, and the support they need to be the most successful they can be in their lives. They're really, really lucky having you. Thank you. Guiding them along the way. This has been awesome. (laughs)
Thank you so much. And thank you, Mr. Wilson, as always. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. And thank you for pursuing the positive. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us one more time on the Pursuit of Podcast, the Pursuit of Indigenous Education. Samantha Tucro, thank you so much for joining us and educating the community. If you're listening to this beyond Northern Michigan, I want you to know that Title VI is a nationwide federal program. Please look into your local school system and see about your Title VI program, Indigenous Education, and how you might get involved and help. And as always, for all podcasting, audio, video inquiries, reach out to us at newleonard.com.